welcome back to our New Testament survey. This is our uh, fifth week, but we are in a fourth book of the New Testament tonight in the Gospel according to John. The Gospel according to John, if you want to go ahead and take your Bibles and turn there. This is the fourth uh, Gospel that we've looked at. Uh, we've previously looked at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are known as the Synoptic Gospels. John uh, is a little bit different, and we'll notice some of those differences this evening as we work our way through uh, his account of the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Christ. The Gospel is titled, of course, The Gospel According to John, and so as we think about uh, the author of this work, uh, he never refers to himself by name in the book. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, obviously, he is one of the 12 disciples. Uh, and in chapter 21, chapter 21, um, if I can read my notes here, chapter 21, verse 2, it says uh, that Jesus has shows himself to his disciples and then it names them to Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. So since the author refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved and does not name himself, we can rule out Peter and Thomas, Nathaniel, uh, and so that leaves us with the sons of Zebedee, which are James and John, and two other disciples uh, as the four possible authors of the work. The early church unanimously uh, attributes the gospel to the Apostle John. Uh, in fact, we have writings from as early 2nd century that uh, refer to this as John's gospel. So uh, overwhelming evidence and testimony of the church for 2,000 years has been that uh, the Apostle John is the author of this work. This is probably the last of the four gospels to be written. Uh, the earliest fragmentary manuscript evidence we have for it comes from 135 AD, and of course that is a copy of a copy or of the original. Uh, we don't know, but most uh, conservative scholars would say that this was written sometime between 60 to about 85 AD. Uh, so a little bit later probably than the other ones. And it's interesting as we read through the Gospel of John to note the differences between John's Gospel and the other ones because there are quite a few differences. Uh, as we looked at the other ones, we noted that uh, they, they organized their material geographically according to Jesus' ministry in Galilee, his journey to Jerusalem, his ministry in Jerusalem. Uh, and John makes note of locations as he uh, is conveying his gospel to us, but that's not really the organizing principle uh, of what he has recorded for us here. He has a, a different purpose and a different way of organizing the material. What is John's purpose in writing this gospel? Well, he was kind enough to tell us exactly what his purpose was. So in chapter 20, uh, verses 30 and 31, uh, the author tells us why he wrote his gospel. It says this, And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John's purpose stated plainly here is that he has recorded these things about Jesus so that we might believe some things about Jesus. First of all, that he is the Christ, that is the, the anointed one, the, 
the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Secondly, that we might know, believe that he is the Son of God, not just a promised uh, Messiah who is a man, but actually divinity, that he is the Son of God, and that believing those two things about Jesus, that we would have life uh, in him. So that's John's purpose in recording these things. And you'll notice in verse 30 that he says, truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Well, that gives us a little bit of a clue about how John has organized uh, the material in his gospel. If we were to outline it pretty simply, I would simply say that chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, serve as a sort of prologue to the whole thing. And then from that point on, chapter 1, verse 19, through the end of chapter 12, uh, John is taken up with signs concerning the identity of Jesus as the Christ and as the Son of God. And then chapters 13 through 20, John is concerned with the passion, uh, with Christ celebrating the the Passover, the Lord's Supper, uh, and then moving on to his death, resurrection, and so on. And then chapter 21 is an epilogue uh, at the end of the gospel. So that's a very simple outline. But as you can see, pretty much half of the gospel is given to this idea of signs, and the other half is given to Jesus' uh, final week on earth as he approaches his death. So as we look at uh, the prologue in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, uh, let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 5 here in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So if you'll remember from Matthew and Luke, uh, they both began with uh, either a genealogy and then an account of Christ's birth or with the birth and then a genealogy in Luke's case. Mark didn't give us either of those things. He just jumped straight into the action of Jesus' ministry. John begins differently. He begins with a more uh, sort of philosophical approach uh, and he doesn't begin with a genealogy Uh, of Christ's earthly descent, but rather he begins by uh, equating Jesus with this idea of the word of God and tells us that he was God. And then he talks about the beginning and the creation. Uh, And so if we think back to Genesis uh, chapter 1, as God begins to create right here at the beginning of the Old Testament text. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. So we can see uh, right there at the beginning that as God speaks, if, we, if you'll remember uh, the six days of creation there at the beginning, God speaks each day and creates things. And so John tells us that Christ is the Word of God. He is that uh, wisdom and Word of God, the active uh, agent of God in creation. And he brings in this idea of light, which is right there on the first day of creation, that God spoke the light into existence. And we're told that Jesus is the light of men and that he shines in the darkness. And so uh, that is a recurring theme that will come up over and over again in John's gospel, the idea of light and darkness. 
Other themes that we'll see as we work our way uh, through John's Gospel are a particular emphasis on the Old Testament feasts and festivals and how Jesus fulfills those things. Uh, And then, uh, in addition to Jesus as the light of salvation, which we'll see multiple times, we'll also see a a theme that is uh, peculiar to John, which is this theme of uh, Jesus being lifted up. John will mention that multiple times, and that's not found in the other Gospels at all. So uh, those are the three major themes in John's Gospel. Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament feasts and festivals, Jesus as the light of the world, and Jesus lifted up. And so as God speaks all things into existence through Christ, uh, there's an important thing to note here in verse 3, and that is that all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So this clearly refutes uh, any idea that Jesus is a created being. All things were made through him. Anything that was made was made through him. So he is uncreated. He is God. And so if we think about uh, the recent survey that came out from Ligonier, the State of Theology survey for 2022, uh, that was one of the questions they had on there is uh, about Jesus and his origins. And unfortunately, a large percentage of those who uh, in other ways answered questions in such a way as to qualify themselves as evangelicals uh, then contradicted their own statements concerning the Trinity and God by saying that they believed Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God, uh, which shows there's some confusion in evangelical churches regarding uh, the nature of Christ and the nature of the Trinity, Uh, but that is clearly refuted right here at the beginning of John's Gospel. Jesus was not a created being, but all things that were created were created through him. Jesus is the light Of men, John tells us in verse 4, he was the life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness. Uh, This is an allusion back to um, both the book of Exodus and the book of Isaiah. If we turn back to Exodus chapter 13, uh, if you'll remember as the people of Israel are, are leaving Egypt, traveling towards the promised land, and God has promised that he will be with them as they go up to the land of Canaan. Uh, It says in verse 20, So they took their journey from Succoth and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. And so uh, God was a light to the people uh, as they journeyed to the promised land. And then, of course, in Isaiah, a passage we're very familiar with, uh, in Isaiah chapter 9, often read uh, around Christmas time, but Isaiah chapter 9, as we, this is the passage that will speak about the child being born, uh, but in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, Isaiah says, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterwards more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And then Isaiah goes on to talk about the child that is born to us who will be the Prince of Peace. So, uh, 
John right here at the beginning of his gospel talking about Jesus being the light of men. This is a theme, again, that will recur throughout his gospel, but he is clearly alluding back to that passage in Isaiah uh, and the light shining in the darkness. Then as, as he moves on with his prologue in verses 6 through 13, he seems to take this detour to talk about John the Baptist. Um, but even here, uh, he talks about uh, Jesus being uh, the light, that John is bearing witness to the light in verse 8, and that Jesus in verse 9 is the true light, which gives light to every man uh, coming into the world. And so this theme, again, of Jesus as the light. <clears throat> but then in verse 14, John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So here he is speaking of the incarnation. John doesn't give us a, an account of the birth the way Matthew and Luke do, but he is speaking of the incarnation, the Word become flesh. Uh, but then he says that he dwelt among us, uh, and that is the same word that might be translated as tabernacle. So John is saying he tabernacled among us. Uh, and this is another theme that we would see in the book of John, uh, that Jesus is in himself uh, not only putting an end to the old system of worship under the Mosaic law, but he is in fact replacing the tabernacle or the temple as the place where God dwells. But if you'll remember from Exodus chapter 40, at the end of the book of Exodus, uh, as they have constructed the tabernacle and uh, put it up for the first time, it says, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting, because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And here John tells us that Christ, in becoming flesh, dwells or tabernacles among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the glory of God dwells in Christ as he is incarnate into flesh, uh, such that he is God dwelling with man. So now John moves, uh, beginning in verse 19, uh, he'll tell some of the same stories uh, parts of the history of Christ that the other evangelists and uh, gospel writers have, uh, but he has a particular focus uh, now on the signs that he mentioned, uh, the signs of who Christ is. And so uh, he starts off with John the Baptist, uh, and some of the Jews and priests and Levites come to John and ask him if he is the Christ or Elijah or the prophet. You'll remember Moses had said that God would raise up for them a prophet. And, and John says he's not these things. He is not the Christ. He's not Elijah. He is not the prophet. And so then they ask him, well, then why are you baptizing? Uh, in verse 25, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Now, that's an interesting verse, particularly for us as Baptists, which shows that what John was doing was not something they were unfamiliar with. Right? They didn't go, why are you dipping people in water? What, what does that mean? They knew what it was to baptize. They just didn't know why he would be doing it if he wasn't 
the, the promised Messiah. Uh, and so if we think about that, James Renahan in a podcast I listen, listened to just recently was talking about the Old Testament ceremonial washings actually being uh, the prefiguring of baptism rather than circumcision uh, and talked about how the priests in the Old Testament had to wash and cleanse themselves uh, so that they would be purified for worship in the tabernacle, service in the tabernacle. And so John is baptizing people uh, for repentance of their sins as he is preparing them to meet with God, who John has just told us is Jesus, God come in the flesh. So that's what's going on there. But John is not uh, the, the Messiah. He makes that clear to us. But then in verse 29, uh, John records for us, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then uh, again in verse 36, John the Baptist says the same thing. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And so uh, John is clearly speaking of Christ as the Passover Lamb uh, provided by God, the one who would be the ultimate sacrifice for sins. And then uh, the rest of chapter 1 is taken up with Jesus beginning to uh, call some of his disciples to himself. And in verse 51, Jesus is speaking and he said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The Son of Man is Jesus' uh, favorite title to give to himself, which of course uh, casts our attention back both to the book of Daniel and the book of Ezekiel, where those, that term is used in both of those Old Testament books. Uh, but he's telling uh, Nathan, uh, Nathaniel, uh, that he will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Uh, that is a reference back to Jacob in the book of Genesis, uh, where he has his vision of a ladder and the angels descending and ascending between earth and heaven, Jesus is making the point that he is now that connecting point between man and God. Uh, we no longer, and we'll see this here again in a couple chapters, but the temple is no longer where men go to connect with God. It is only in Christ. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, you'll notice that John says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, John has particularly mentioned days throughout chapter 1 and verse 29 and the next day. Uh, and then in chapter 35, again, the next day, verse 43, the following day. And now in chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day. <clears throat> so uh, depending on how you count these days here, you either end up with six or seven days, basically a week. Uh, and John will reference six days again uh, in chapter 12. Uh, when he begins to move towards uh, the passion of Christ. In chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Uh, So a lot of commentators make a note of those two patterns of six days, that we have six days at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and now we have six days uh, at the beginning of his passion. G.K. Beale, in his commentary, says this. He says, John probably mentions these six days so to present the beginning of Jesus' ministry as the beginning of a new creation. God creates the heavens and the earth in six days, according to Genesis 1 and 2, and now Christ begins to establish the new heavens and earth in six days. Uh, And so he has just related to us uh, 
Christ's participation in creation there at the beginning of chapter 1 and, and he's hinting at the new creation that is coming in Christ with the mention of these six days. But then chapter 2 there of course we have uh, the first miracle that John records for us which is Jesus turning water into wine at this wedding feast uh, and there's a reference there back to Isaiah. Again there's a lot of references to uh, the Old Testament, particularly Isaiah, when we're speaking of the life of Christ. But in Isaiah chapter 25, the prophet notes this. He says, And in this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of morrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. Uh, and so this is a part of Isaiah's prophecy concerning uh, the end of the age and the, the creation of the new heavens and the new earth and he speaks of the finest of wines being provided by God and here the first uh, miracle that John records for us is Jesus providing wine that was better, so much better than the other wine that uh, it was noted by those who were participating in that. And so John at the end of this account um, says in verse 11, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And so John calls this a sign. This is uh, one of the, the signs that John is concerned to represent to us. There are seven of them in total uh, and this is the first sign. And remember a sign is something that points to uh, another reality beyond itself, right? A sign on the highway is not the exit but it's telling us where the exit is. So these signs are telling us something uh, about Christ. Uh, this first sign, of course, pointing, if we take that reference to Isaiah, that this is the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth, that Christ is the fulfillment of those prophecies found there uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. And if we look back at Deuteronomy chapter 29, We read this. Now Moses called all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, the signs and those great wonders. Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. And so uh, Moses even makes note of the signs that were performed by God in uh, Egypt as he led the people out of their captivity there that not all uh, the people had eyes to see or hearts to believe because of those signs and we'll see the same thing uh, in the life of Christ that not all of Israel uh, will take note of these signs and believe in him but John is writing them so that we might believe. Well then in chapter 2 verses 19 and 21 uh, Jesus is clean, cleansing the temple uh, and in verse 19, uh, as they're asking him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Or in verse 18, in verse 19, Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Uh, and then in verse 21, John says he was speaking of the temple of his body. Uh, and so Jesus is clearly replacing uh, the physical temple uh, with himself. And if we think about what John 
the apostle wrote for us in the book of Revelation, in chapter 21, verse 22, as he relays to us the glory of the new heavens and the new earth, uh, he speaks of the new city of Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And he says, but I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And so Christ is the temple of the new creation. He is the dwelling place of God with man. Well, then in chapter 3, we have Christ's conversation with Nicodemus. And notice again uh, John's focus on uh, light and darkness. This man, he says in verse 2, came to Jesus by night and said to him. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the dead of night when it is dark out, um, giving us a little bit of a clue about Nicodemus himself. Uh, He's in the dark and he's coming to the light, wanting to understand, but he's having difficulty uh, understanding. Uh, And so Jesus talks to him about what it means to be born again. And and he says that Nicodemus should understand what he is saying concerning this uh, because This is a fulfillment of Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37, uh, that particularly uh, chapter 37, verse 9, where Ezekiel, that's the story of the dry bones, uh, and God breathes new life into those bones by his spirit. Ezekiel hears the sound of a wind and the bones come to life. Uh, God is breathing new life into dry bones. Uh, by the wind of the Spirit here in John chapter 3 as he gives birth to a new creation as men are born again to a new life. Then in chapter 4, Jesus meets with a Samaritan woman uh, and again in this uh, interaction with the woman here, he in verse 14 Uh, tells her that whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Uh, And so this is a a reference back to Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, uh, and several other passages in the Old Testament. But Isaiah 12, 3 is worth reading because it will be mentioned again. But in chapter 12, verse 3 of Isaiah He writes, therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Uh, And so Jesus is uh, that life. Of course, again, in the book of Revelation, we see the river of life flowing out of uh, the the garden of God there in the new Jerusalem. Uh, And so Jesus is the one who provides that water that becomes a spring of everlasting life. Uh, Then in chapter 4, verse 21, again we see Jesus hinting at himself being the replacement for the earthly temple. Uh, When Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Uh, So the hour is coming, it is now here, uh, when you won't worship at that temple or this temple, but you worship in spirit and in truth uh, because God dwells in Christ, not in a physical temple uh, building anymore. Then uh, in chapter 4, verse uh, 54, we see that Christ has healed a a nobleman's son who was sick. Uh, And at the end of that episode, John says, this again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Now, it's interesting to note that John only records seven miracles. 
uh, apart from the resurrection, if you want to call that a miracle, but seven miracles uh, that Jesus performs in his public ministry. And so these are John's signs. The other uh, gospel writers record many more miracles than that, but John focuses on these seven uh, as signs, giving us clues about the identity of Christ. Christ has just uh, healed uh, this nobleman's son who was sick. Uh, and so He's showing us that God, that Jesus is God. He is the one who has the power uh, to heal, the power to give life. Uh, he says in verse 53, uh, the father knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, uh, that his son was healed. So uh, Jesus has the power to give life. And it says that he himself believed in his whole household, which is why John is writing these things to us, that we might believe. Then we see in chapter 5, verse 8, uh, John, John records for us that Jesus has healed this uh, invalid at the pool of Bethesda. Uh, and Jesus says to him, rise, take up your bed, and walk. So another healing. This is the third sign uh, that that Jesus performs, and that is, is that he is able to heal uh, the invalid, to make someone walk who was lame. And so all of this is adding up to, to tell us that uh, Jesus is uh, God. He is equal with God. In fact, the Jewish leaders begin to pick up on this uh, as Jesus tells them that he's doing these things because he says in verse 17, my father has been working until now and I have been working Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So they, they realized what Jesus was saying about himself. He was saying that he was God, that he was equal with the father, uh, that he was able to do these things because of who he was uh, as God. And then in chapter 5, verse 21, uh, Jesus speaking again says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Uh, and so he obviously is speaking about not only physical life, but about spiritual life, the new birth, that he, he gives life to those that he will give it to, that he has the power and the authority uh, to do that. In Daniel chapter 12, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, uh, says that, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's the only place in the Old Testament that the, the phrase everlasting life is used, is there in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Uh, but uh, God's promise of life, everlasting life, and the resurrection is being fulfilled in Christ uh, as he gives life to those whom he wills to give it to. Uh, then in chapter 6, uh, verse 4, uh, John makes a note uh, concerning the Passover. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. And then he goes on to relay uh, the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now this is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels as Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. And John makes sure to um, mention that the Passover was near because his, part of his focus is on the festivals and the feasts. 
He makes mentions of them quite frequently, uh, noting that Jesus is the fulfillment of those things. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Passover Lamb provided by God. Uh, then in chapter 6, verse 14, uh, it says, after Jesus has fed them and they've gathered up the fragments, it says, then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So this is John's uh, fourth sign that Jesus is uh, able to provide abundantly for his people. And he tells us that those who saw it believed. They believed that Jesus was the prophet, the one who had been promised uh, in the Old Testament. Then uh, the next incident that John records for us is Jesus walking on the water. Uh, in this particular uh, instance is a little different than how it's related in some of the other Gospels, but um, in verse 19 it says, So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And so this is the fifth sign. This is Jesus' miracle of walking on the water, which shows uh, his dominion over creation, uh, his place once again as God. For Job records for us in Job chapter 9, verse 8, speaking of God, Job says, He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. And so John's point, again, is that Jesus is the Son of God. He is able to tread on the waves of the sea as only God can do. Then in chapter 6, verse 55, uh, Jesus is speaking, uh, and he, he says, my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Uh, Jesus has been speaking about feeding them bread, uh, feeding the multitudes, and he says that his body is the true food, that his blood is the true drink um, that has come down from heaven. Uh, he is the bread that God has provided uh, for his people. He says, this is the bread which came down from heaven, in verse 58, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. And so he is equating himself to the manna that God provided for them uh, in the wilderness and saying that he is the true bread of life, uh, which is a phrase that he will use here in another couple chapters. But um, then John makes a point in chapter 7, of telling us that uh, the Feast of Tabernacles was near. In chapter 7, verse 2, now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. Now, of course, this is the feast where they would go to Jerusalem, build uh, little tabernacles, and dwell in them for a week as they celebrated the wilderness wanderings. Um, and so they're looking back to that time and God's provision for them. And Jesus has just told us that he is that provision uh, that God has given to us. Then in chapter 7, verse 38, once again we see Jesus equating himself um, to uh, living water. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Uh, and that's a quote from Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, uh, again about the, the living water, the waters of salvation. Then in chapter Still in chapter 8, verse 58, uh, Jesus makes this statement. 
speaking to the Jews, talking with them about uh, Abraham. And they say to him, you are not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. This is another thing that is unique to John's gospel, is these I am statements. This is the plainest one, where he says, I am, which of course is a reference uh, back to uh, the book of Exodus, when God explains to Moses who he is, and says, I am that I am. But John relates to us several of these I am statements. In chapter 6, verses 35, 41, 48, and 51, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, verses 7 and 9, he calls himself the gate of the sheepfold. Uh, In chapter 10, verses 11 and 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. In chapter 11, verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in chapter 15, verses 1 and 5, I am the true vine. So we have these I am statements of Christ making statements about his identity, that he is God. He is the bread of life, the light of the world, the good shepherd, which of course is a reference back to Ezekiel. Uh, We'll mention that here in a few minutes. But these are statements of his divine identity going back to Exodus chapter 3 verse 14 where God revealed himself to Moses. So this is part of John's overall purpose to tell us that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. Then in chapter 9 verse 7, uh, Jesus speaking to a man who was born blind, said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Uh, So this is the sixth sign that Jesus does, uh, giving sight to the blind. Uh, And this is a allusion back to Exodus uh, chapter 4, verse 2, where God tells Moses particularly that it is he uh, who gives sight or blindness. He says in chapter 4, um, verse 11, Exodus four eleven. Uh, so the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth, or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Uh, so it is God who made this man to be born blind, and it is God who gives him his sight uh, in Christ. And so this was the sixth sign that he did. Uh, Then in chapter 10, verse 11, of course, we have Jesus uh, referring to himself as the good shepherd. Uh, This is a reference back to Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 16 through 19 and 20 through 24, uh, where Ezekiel talks about uh, the the shepherds of Israel uh, condemning them for not uh, being holy and doing what they were supposed to, and then God promises that he himself will shepherd the people. And so Jesus here is claiming that for himself, that he is God. He is the one who will shepherd the people as their good shepherd. Then in chapter 11, uh, Jesus performs the seventh sign, which is the resurrection of Lazarus. Uh, Lazarus has died. Uh, Jesus goes there to where he is buried. Uh, And Jesus, in speaking to Martha in chapter 11, verse 23, uh, Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. 
Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So uh, Jesus then raises Lazarus from the dead. Uh, and so this is the seventh sign pointing to Christ as the author of life and to the resurrection from the dead, which is, of course, a fulfillment of that passage in Daniel that speaks of the resurrection and everlasting life. So then in chapter 12, John makes the point now that there are six days before the Passover, uh, and he begins to move towards uh, that Passion Week, uh, referencing back to those six days in chapter 1 and 2 at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Chapter 12, verse 31 uh, is interesting because as Jesus is speaking uh, in chapter 12, verses 30 and 31, uh, Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world, and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. This is the only place that John mentions the casting out of Satan or demonic forces. That was mentioned a lot. Uh, in the other Gospels. It's the only reference that John makes to that action of Jesus. Uh, John was more concerned at the beginning with those signs, identifying Christ as the Son of God, and now he moves uh, into Christ's passion, uh, but he does make a point there of mentioning that uh, Satan himself will be cast out, so there's no need to mention the casting out of the demons uh, if the chief of the demons has been cast out. But in spite of all these signs that Jesus did, uh, they still did not believe. And so uh, we read in verse 37 where John records for us, But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Uh, and so John has told us that Jesus is the tabernacle where God dwells in the fullness of his glory. Uh, he's relating to us that when John saw God's glory, he said these things and that these things are true and fulfilled in the life of Christ as the Jews saw the signs uh, but did not believe fulfilling uh, these prophecies of Isaiah's. So then John moves into uh, the Passion in chapters 13 through 20, uh, and this is where he begins to pick up on uh, this idea of Jesus being lifted up. Back in chapter 3, verse 14, uh, Jesus had said that he must be lifted up as Moses had lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness so that men might be healed. Uh, in chapter 8, verse 28, Jesus told the Jewish leaders that when they lifted him up, uh, that he would be glorified. And here in chapter 12, verse 34, uh, Jesus said, um, the Son of Man must be lifted up. <clears throat> so now John moves towards that action happening, Jesus being lifted up on the cross, uh, 
obviously speaking of the crucifixion. And so John makes mention once again, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So John mentions again uh, this Passover feast. Jesus, again, is the Lamb of God. He is the Passover Lamb. John then goes into an extended uh, discourse by Jesus, an interaction uh, between him and his disciples that goes all the way through chapter 17. Um, And it's interesting because if we think about Old Testament characters, uh, if we consider Jacob in Genesis 49, near the end of his life, uh, he has an extended discourse with his sons. Moses, near the end of his life, has a very extended discourse with the children of Israel before they enter uh, the promised land in, in the book of Deuteronomy. Joshua in chapter 24 of his book, David in 1 Chronicles 28 and 29, and now Jesus here in John 13 through 17, has this extended discourse with his disciples before the end of his life. Uh, Included in this discourse are Jesus washing the disciples' feet here in chapter 13. Uh, Again, John makes many references to Jesus as the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies. Nineteen times uh, in the book of Isaiah, he speaks of the servant the suffering servant, and Jesus is not only the Messiah, the Son of God, he is that servant of Isaiah uh, as he washes their feet as a servant might. Chapters 14 and 16 uh, highlight the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, he calls him the Spirit of Truth. Uh, And in chapter 14, 26, he promises that the Spirit will teach the disciples Interestingly, he says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And what we are reading is proof of that, as John is recording for us all these things that Jesus said uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Then chapter 17 uh, is Jesus, what we call Jesus' high priestly prayer. Uh, which is an interesting prayer that Christ makes for his disciples. Uh, Part of the encouraging part about this is that in verse 20, he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, which means Jesus is praying here for us. He is praying for us who believe because of the testimony of the apostles recorded for us in the scriptures. He makes three petitions for the Father concerning his disciples in this prayer. Uh, in verse, well, three petitions of the Father. In verse 5, he asks that the Lord would glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So he prays and asks God to glorify the Son with the Father. And in verses 15 and through 16, he prays for protection for his disciples from spiritual harm. And then in, in verses 21 through 23, he prays uh, for unity in his church, unity among his followers, those who would believe on him. Then in chapter 18, John records uh, the arrest and the trial of Christ. And again, this happens at night, uh, going back to that theme of light in the darkness that John has carried throughout his gospel with Nicodemus. And there in chapter 1, verse 5, that Jesus is the light shining in the darkness. And so at night, they arrest him, they put him on trial. Uh, Interestingly, uh, as Pilate tries Christ uh, and in chapter 19, 
he's trying to decide what to do with Jesus. And so he, it says in verse 13, When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover. So here again, John is cluing us into the, the Jewish calendar, the feasts, and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Now how condemning is that? They would rather side with a pagan king than submit themselves to God's Messiah, to God's Christ. Uh, Just as Isaiah had prophesied, uh, they would harden their hearts just as Pharaoh had done when the signs were performed in Egypt. They have hardened their hearts uh, to the signs that Jesus has performed and refused to believe and to bow the knee to him. And so John has clued us in that the Passover is about to happen. Uh, Jesus will fulfill that Passover in chapter 19, uh, verse 36. Uh, He says, for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. He's quoting there from Exodus chapter 12 verse 46 concerning the preparation of the Passover lamb. That they were not to break its bones as they were preparing it for the Passover. And he says that these things were done to Jesus that that passage, that scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus is the lamb of God. He is the Passover lamb uh, who is killed for our salvation. Well, then Christ is crucified and buried. And in chapter 20, uh, they go to the empty tomb, uh, Peter and John. John tells this uh, story here in his gospel uh, and mentions the fact that he was involved, whereas it's not mentioned in the other gospels. It just mentions the women and Peter. Uh, But then uh, John tells us the other disciple, that would be himself, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. So John is telling that he believed in the resurrection. But then in verse 9 it says, For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So they still had a, a, not a full understanding of the scriptures. Uh, the Old Testament scriptures that spoke of the resurrection probably led them to believe that all of God's people would be resurrected at the same time. And so uh, they were not prepared for the idea that the Messiah would be resurrected first and then his people would be resurrected later. Uh, But so they did not yet uh, understand those scriptures. But then in chapter 20, verse 22, Jesus has appeared to his disciples, uh, and he says to them um, in verse 21, So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And so this is likely an allusion back to Genesis 2, verse 7, where God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a living being. And so here Jesus is breathing on them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, be born anew of the Spirit, and become living beings in a spiritual sense. And then, of course, we have John's purpose statement there in verses 30 and 31. Uh, These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Then in chapter 21, the epilogue, uh, Jesus has breakfast with the disciples, eating with them, uh, so that we can see that his resurrection was bodily 
It was real. It wasn't just a vision they were having. Uh, Jesus really did uh, resurrect from the grave, really did physically resurrect and was able to eat with them. And it also uh, casts our minds back to uh, the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6 that Jesus, again, breaks bread and fish with the disciples and also um, the miraculous catch of fish. Uh, that he had them do because they're out fishing at this time, and and that is reenacted as well. But then in chapter 21, verse 24, John records for us at the end of his narrative, this is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Uh, So he's saying, I was an eyewitness to these things, I'm testifying of these things, and we know that these things are true. And so his purpose is, is that we would know that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that believing we might have life in his name. And so John has made a point of, of belief all through this. Uh, and those who saw the signs and did not believe, and yet his purpose and prayer and hope for us is that we would see the signs, read of them, this eyewitness testimony that he was shared, and that we would believe and have life in Christ who is the bread of life and the river of living waters. Let's pray.